Hello, welcome along to the podcast Sport and Life. Teddy Draper with you once again, sports broadcaster in the UK. Thank you for hitting on the button. Hope you're well as Christmas looms large on the horizon. Thank you for being here. Thank you to the sponsors, Bang & Olufsen, Chel- Olufsen of Cheltenham and Serene AV, specialists in some of the finest home entertainment brands, providing solutions based around high-quality customer service and installations. Look up Serene AV social media, get in touch with Jason Briggs and his fine team, or visit their beautiful store, bedecked in a fluttering of snow at the moment, no doubt, in the courtyard in Montpellier here in Cheltenham in the west of England. If you're looking to optimise your immunity over the winter period, if you're in the Northern Hemisphere, then head to cytoplan.co.uk, C-Y-T-O-P-L-A-N.co.uk, food-based supplements that I've been taking for 20 plus years under the stewardship of my father, Dr. Mark Draper. And at checkout at Cytoplan, you can get 30% off your first purchase, 10% ongoing with the discount code DRAPER10R. My last name, D-R-A-P-E-R, all capital letters, the numerals one zero and the capital letter R. Have you ever wanted to hear a loved one's voice again, hear their life stories? Things have got a bit misty and murky maybe in your memory. Well, that's something we're looking to address to connect generations really and preserve people's voices, their stories throughout forever really, indefinitely. And it's through Attic Box Audio. If you go to drapermedia.co.uk, this is a project my wife and I launched in lockdown, and there's more information about it there. But it's basically me sitting down using, I guess, the two decades worth of speaking to people, experience I've got through working in the media to just tease out those life stories, very relaxed setting in someone's home or in our home, and just have a, a good old chat. And it's then safe for posterity to connect generations. So that's Attic Box Audio. Check out drapermedia.co.uk. Remember the free mentoring sessions with Anthony Asprey in the Whole Man Academy. Click on the link in the show notes for that. But now on to the podcast with Tim Jatiski, who has a wonderful history in journalism, but now is working in reputational maintenance, which is a fascinating kind of switch for him. And it's great speaking to him about the evolution of journalism and what he's doing now as well. He was also amongst very high profile jobs in the media, in the print media. He was sports editor at the Daily Mail. So great to chat to him about that. Here he is, Tim Jatiski. Tim Dutiski, welcome to the podcast. Great to see you today. We're in snow and, and railway strikes, but apart from that, how, how's life? Uh, yeah, very good. Thanks, Ted. Uh, nice and busy, which uh, which is good. I had out for a quieter end of the year, but it's not happened, so uh, I'll embrace it anyway. Good. Well, tell us a little bit about your story, because I find it fascinating. I mean, people would, there's a cliche, isn't there? Uh, was it poacher turned gamekeeper or something? Not that you're the, the same thing, but these it were reversal in roles in a sense, both interlinked, but you've gone from a, a great career in journalism to a career in, in reputational management, which I guess we can dig into. But if you could just give us the, the kind of background, the foundations of, of your journey. Yeah, sure. So um, I spent 25 years in, uh, in journalism on national newspapers. Um, the last five of them at the uh, Telegraph Group. I was uh, deputy editor of the Sunday Telegraph for four years and um, also business editor of the Telegraph. But most of my time was actually spent um, at, the, uh, at the Daily Mail. I was there for 17 years in different guises. Um, started off in the uh, in the newsroom at the Daily Mail, having uh, trained on uh, on local papers, as was the way back in the day. Uh, started off on the Eastern Daily Press for for a couple of years in East Anglia, and then went to the Daily Mail newsroom. I did a variety of editing jobs there. Um, I was uh, executive news editor, foreign editor, um, editor of the Scottish Daily Mail, 
uh, editor of Metro, which is owned by the Daily Mail. But my favourite uh, job in my 25 years of journalism was sports editor at the Mail, which I did for four years. Wow. Um, and uh, yeah, that was um, that was a real treat. Um, and then, um, yeah, I decided to uh, to make the move, as you say, uh, poach turn gamekeeper um, back in uh, 2014 um, and joined the PHA group, which is one of the leading independent um, PR agencies founded by uh, Phil Hall, who's a former national newspaper journalist and editor himself, um, and then have gravitated to reputation work um, over the last sort of couple of years in particular uh, recently. And I work with quite a variety of, of, of clients, some of them um, in the in the sporting landscape, um, others not, um, but it could be um, anything from um, high profile individuals to uh, big corporates or uh, third sector organizations so um, really just helping um, do two things um, both mitigate and plan for reputational issues and then deal with rep reputational issues when when they happen uh, it, that's fascinating we'll get into that in just a second but I mean the journalism stuff I'm, I'm really intrigued by because I know you left it in 2014 but the span of your career must have been fascinating particularly with newspapers how that situation changed the impact of the internet on the business model and the, the style of journalism as well the rise of the daily mail website i think has has been phenomenal hasn't it in that time it's, it's a website that's kind of dominated in in sport and news the digital space from the established media anyway from their perspective what what was that journey what was that kind of evolution like as you as you worked in it well it's interesting um ted because i do remember when i um when I took over the um, uh, the sports department, the Daily Mail, I remember um, right at the beginning, um, and I wasn't a sports journalist by background. I'd been a, a news journalist, and I and I had a meeting with with the team, and I said, "Look, um, as someone who loves sport but hasn't been a sports journalist, nothing annoys me more than I'm reading the sports pages." And I don't know whether to believe a story or not, particularly the latest transfer speculation involving my club. Yeah. So I said, "What I want is to make our sports pages." credible that if people read in the Daily Mail a story they know it's right um, and I and I really worked at that very hard and I think we um, you know we, we did get that element right when the um, Mail Online was launched and became more popular this really was the very early days mm. there was a different approach and it was much more that clickbait approach um, to, to sports journalism and that did um, sort of have repercussions really because um, there were stories which we wouldn't run because we didn't believe they were right. And yet they were running on Mail Online because, well, it's just clickbait. It's just transfer speculation. So you have that sort of divergence between the brand in print mm. and the brand online. And I think to some extent, that's something which, um, you know, a lot of titles have wrestled with to some extent. Um, how do you try and sort of have one brand that sits both in print and, and online? Um but also, I mean, in those days, I still remember it, and it won't—it will make me sound very old, I suspect. But um, uh, we first had to introduce the concept to our football reporters that when they were sort of at live, you know, matches on a Wednesday night or whatever, um, they'd have to do what was pretty unsophisticated running copy for uh, the website. You know, okay. I think we were asking them to do sort of, you know, two or three updates um, uh, online um, during the match, <laughs> and this was met with horror, and we can't possibly do it, and so on. And of course, now. You know, the days of live text commentary have been with us for many, many years. It's a totally different sort of concept yeah. and a totally different model. Yeah, that, that, that tension, isn't it? I've, I've seen it, I've witnessed it. And I was a, 
uh, Journalism College from 2003 to 2005, and we were predicting a lot of impacts on traditional media, be it print or, or, or broadcast media, uh, uh, sort of terrestrial media. But it's it, that that campaign for attention that we didn't really foresee in the, the mass expanse of the internet. How everyone you mentioned clickbait there. It's it's great attention, hasn't it? For those of us who grew up reading great writing, watching great programs, listening to great radio programs. There's that sort of a, a sort of uh, a pull towards drama and, and sensation to to get attention. How how did you sort of manage that? Do you see shoots now that the internet through maybe podcasting through. Um, some platforms like The Athletic have launched with with sort of in-depth journalism. Do you think that is shifting a little bit, that perhaps the internet is becoming a space for for proper journalism, for professional sort of considered journalism? Well, it's so diverse, isn't it? I mean, I think the, the sort of advent of social media and the impact it's had on sports journalism, I think, like all journalism, it's made everything much more shouty. Mm. And, you know, we all know it's very easy to, everyone's got opinions in, in, in about sport, about football. and um, but But I think what I worry about sometimes is, you know, journalists who feel that they have to have the the most outrageous opinion just to sort of, you know, get their the voice heard. And I don't think that makes for, you know, constructive um, journalism um, necessarily. But as you say, there are lots of different models. And, um, you know, I think what The Athletic have done is is really interesting and, and, and how they've tried to bring that, you know, more in-depth approach. Um, and, you know, where they have good reporters who are, you know, covering sort of a club you know, day in, day out, it's almost like sort of having, you know, the days of, sort of, you know, local journalism where you had, you know, reporters who really get under the skin of a club and really understand it. Um, and are, let's say, a critical friend, which is probably the right sort of relationship. Um, and, and and I think, you know, that 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 can work very well. And, and there is sort of the advent, to some extent, of slower journalism. You know, there's mm. an outlet called Tortoise, which is trying to go much more in depth into the way it you know, reports and so on. So there's all sorts of different avenues you can you can go down. But there's no doubt it has changed. You know, the relationship, because I think you know when um, I started off in newspapers, and actually for most of my career, um, newspapers were almost the arbiters. You know, there was no social media. There no, there was no internet. And so that editing role was a really powerful one because you sort of curated a, a newspaper and you gave opinions and and there was less sort of diversity, I suppose, of, a, you know, out there in terms of, you know, media channels. So, mm. yeah, the world has moved on and we have to sort of embrace that. Yeah, it's it's fascinating, some of the threads there, the opinion aspect of it, because I find myself quite fortunate in my day job at Sky Sports News. I'm on in the evenings, which is generally a report of games that have happened, things like that. But we've changed different approaches and nuanced approaches throughout the day now so in the morning it's more conversational people are relaxed dressed there's scope for opinion on who your favorite player is and all this kind of stuff which is a sort of uh, trained in objectivity I find a little bit uncomfortable it was always supposed to be us setting up the pundits for their opinion and as you say particularly online on social media there's this kind of gravitas of, of certain journalists or, or they they're magnetic to attention because they'll be sensational in an opinion on a, a denouncing a footballer or a boxer or whoever it might be. And you sort of think for me, you know, inherently you lack credibility unless you've been at that level and, and played and, and have an empathy for it. Whereas some people are very comfortable just shouting, as you say, being shouty, which is, which is fascinating. And I think it, that's one aspect. And I think that the quality writing, you grow up reading quality writing. I think that is an important thing. And, and even a good match report, I think sometimes you can get bullet points online, text updates, but there is something about a good writer giving you a, a summative analysis of a game is in a balanced way. 
I think that sometimes we we miss a little bit now. It's still in the in the in the print copies. You say people like Henry Winter do a great job of that in the Times, um, but I, I do miss that aspect of it. But I find that opinion that opinion element is is intriguing because that's a big a big shift, isn't it? In the last twenty years, that sort of the journalist slash pundit. Yeah, it is. And, um, you know, uh, Private Eye have a character called Glenda Slag, who's sort of known for always sort of, you know, changing her mind from one column to the next, doing a complete sort of 360, you know, U-turn um, yeah. um, without drawing breath. And I, and I do sometimes worry when I see sort of pundits, I think sport really attracts this, do, doing the same things. I mean, you know, if you look at sort of Gareth Southgate, for example, it's mm. quite interesting, isn't it, when we go back to the, you know, very disappointing somewhere the nation's league and the way that sort of suddenly he was a clown and he you know um tactically couldn't get anything right and then actually it's been interesting to see um this world cup and even after a very disappointing quarterfinal exit nevertheless um most of the journalists um and pundits have been you know pretty supportive of him to the mm. extent that you know they're pleading with him to stay and you know acknowledging that actually his record as england manager um, has has been very good. I mean, he may not be the best um, uh, coach in, in, in you know in the world, but nevertheless, there is more to um, a national football team than just the you know the simple making substitutions at the right time. There's also creating a culture around it, which you know which he's done very well. Um, so I like to see consistency, um, and unfortunately, it's not something we always get. No. You know, I think. Part of sport, isn't it? There's, there's emo emotional, yeah, emotional pendulum that people swing from. It's interesting that in terms of the press's analysis of, of Gareth Southgate in particular, because I think around World Cups, there's a lot of documentaries made. And for, for those of a certain generation, my first World Cup, I remember, was Italia 90. And it's looking back at that and some of the documentaries detail the influence of the, the press on Bobby Robson, the then manager, and the, the pressure they put him on and almost the kind of... Um, sort of judge and executioner role they played in the in the coach role do you see it still as as a significant influence when you're looking at the reputation of of managers of, of football clubs the the written press or is it just so multifaceted now that it's a it's a big job no i think the written press do still kind of really lead um and i think that you know and i think that's right actually and i i firmly believe and i perhaps would say this wouldn't i having sort of worked in newspapers for so long but i think newspapers national newspapers still tend to shape um opinion it's still what you know we sort of you know um uh, look out for and, and and they can still be very wounding and i um you know i've represented crystal palace for 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 the last eight years and mm. um uh you know working with with roy hodgson when he came to to palace i think he was very scarred by his time with england and the way in which it finished and the way in which he felt certain journalists um on national newspapers had been you know, in his view, very unfair to him, the way they depicted what he had achieved there. So, and that was something, I, you know, I really sort of sense. So I think that shows that, yes, they do have an impact. And yes, clubs and managers and individuals within in the game still, you know, still very much take to heart, perhaps, perhaps sometimes too much, what, what mm. is written about. How, how do you define what a, what a reputation is when you're working with a client? Is it something that you sort of source articles about that person? Is it sort of more intangible? What's the... What's your kind of working it, working approach? Yeah, to it? it is it is um, intangible, but there is a sort of definition that um, an academic working, I think, in this area sort of pioneered, which I quite like, and it's um, uh, it's um, capability plus character equals reputation. So if you take Uber for example, mm. um, you wouldn't necessarily invite Uber home to have tea with your mum, but <laughs> um, while it's doing a good job and getting you from A to B, that's fine. Its reputation can remain, you know, reasonably strong. 
once uh, drivers start cancelling and you can't get taken from A to B and it's not performing the function, yeah. then you say, well, actually, I don't like them very much in terms of their image and they can't do their job and their reputation suffers. So that's sometimes a way that it's quite, you know, a nice way of capturing um, what a reputation yeah. is. And, and it's an interesting psychology, you say, working with Roy Hodgson, because how do people everyday world approaches because even people with quote-unquote non-celebrity status now as you mentioned social media potentially clients of, of companies will get feedback on things like LinkedIn they'll get other people's opinions thrust upon them how do how do we live our life because in one sense there's this this culture around self-development is don't worry about other people's opinions that's caveman stuff we can thrive and survive on our own and all this kind of approach to it um, and it can be paralyzing can't it to overthink what others are, are making of us our reputation how do you sort of compartmentalize that when you work with your clients that that basis because as you say it can be significant to career prospects and things what others deem our reputation to be but maybe overdwelling on it can be um an impediment yeah, I think it does depend very much on the you know, specific situation. I think anyone involved in sport, you know, generally at a sort of high profile, I'd always recommend that they don't, you know, um, read everything that's written about them on social media. They they really do try and sort of um, compartmentalise them because otherwise, you you know, we all know there's a lot of hateful stuff out there. Mm. Um, I think it's a bit different if you're a brand and, you know, you've got customers and if the customers are complaining, there's normally a reason for that. So if you're just going to ignore that, um, then you're probably not really doing your, your job right. So um, I think with that, it's really trying to define, okay, is this person reasonable in terms of what they're saying? Have they got a reasonable case that they're making? And therefore, um, we should engage with them mm. and we should you know, um, have a reasonable conversation. Once it becomes hateful, once it becomes abusive, I think you have permission not to engage. Um, but it's sometimes differentiating between the the two is um you know is is is, is can be difficult you know um but there are lines that you can draw mm. um and equally i think you know what one of the um the things you know that unfortunately happens nowadays is people being cancelled and um and that's a you know real issue for someone who sort of lives and breathes on social media and i remember working with a, a client who um who really you know her her life was defined by her social media following and she was cancelled i think in my view very unfairly um over a, a plagiarism row of which you know she was entirely innocent um and she just stopped sort of um, she you know shut down briefly her social media and, and she was trying to get some sense of well when can i go back on and ultimately if your social media um presence is your livelihood you know you can't afford to let them mm. um you know, lose your livelihood. Yeah, yeah. So, so you know, we developed a strategy to sort of, um, sort of you know, for her to to reengage, and there's and, and there's a way of doing that. But that comes from you know, in in sense that the, the core was that she was the wrong party. You know, she mm. was innocent of what she'd been accused of, and it was just finding a way of demonstrating that. And sometimes, you know, you have the silent majority, and yeah, it's important to try and give them permission to become your advocates, because the danger is they sometimes just sort of go along in a herd-like way because a noisy minority uh, are taking a particular line. And it's actually almost empowering the silent majority to become advocates for you. Yeah, it's an interesting psychology, that, isn't it? The mob mentality of the, the pile-on, particularly you see, it, you see it digitally, and we've seen it in, in obviously football stadiums, unfortunately, down the, down the decades as well. But beyond that, like you're saying, I think a lot of people who are just busy with their everyday life may have a positive view of someone, but you're not necessarily going to be motivated to go onto the internet and, and espouse that. I suppose that's an important thing that you, you express to your clients. 
Yeah, and I think that's what, you know, go back to my point um, a moment ago, I think that's why, you know, if you are obsessing about what people are, are saying about you, you know, you forget that if you look at Twitter, I mean, I you know like Twitter, I use Twitter, but it is an echo chamber. Mm. Um, and it is, as you say, um, a very narrow segment. It's not somewhere you're always going to get, um, you know, rational debate. You will sometimes, but often you won't. So if you're just sort of taking Twitter as representative of, you know, the population at large, then, you know, that that's just not right. And you have to, but it's, you know, these things are easy to say. And I think the work that I do with, particularly with individuals, when you're at the centre of a of a media storm, it, it's frightening. You know, it's a very scary place, and um, you sort of feel the whole world's against you. And sometimes you actually just need someone who is sort of sufficiently distanced from it, just to give you that sort of um, calm reassurance and to contextualise things a bit and see the bigger picture. Because when you're in a social media storm or a media storm, often you lose sight of that. And even you know, very intelligent, very able people. Um, you know, find it very difficult to sort of um, to really sort of keep it in proportion. Mm. And once you lose proportion, then um, it becomes very difficult to make you know sound decisions. How important is it ahead of time in, in the modern world regarding reputation to decide what you want to be? Because we've talked about some journalists there who will come out with very opinionated stuff, which will, of course, raise the ire of some sections of society, some fans, whatever it may be. And you actually see sports journalists now commenting on every aspect of, of political life or whatever else, people just shooting from the hip. Where If you adopt that approach and if a client of yours adopts that approach, do you presumably have to warn them that then you are going to be in a, in a kind of digital battleground to an extent, if you're going to be a sort of forceful, opinionated person, that that, that is the territory and maybe to, to think about how you, how you want to be thought of before you, before you go in. But as you say, it can be, it can be lucrative to be that way as well. Yeah. But as you say, you've got to reap what you sow. So if you're going to be out there sort of shooting your mouth off on social media, then expect to have takedowns. And also, of course, crucially, if you then get into a difficult situation, people will be analysing everything that you've said and done in the past. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, in terms of a sort of, you know, reputation, it always um, starts with, you know, what your core values are. And that mm. can be an individual or a brand. Um, and I think what I always say to people is when you get into a difficult situation, you know, reputationally, this is often when things, you know, play out in the media. Um, if you're, you know, in the centre of a really big sort of media storm, will scrutinise you or your business, you know, to the nth degree. And that's where, if essentially at your core, you are solid, you will more likely come through it. But if actually you've got something to hide, you've got skeletons, they will be found. Mm. And that's when it becomes more and more difficult to sort of really, um, you know, uphold a positive reputation. Yeah, when it's a reputation or this sort of modern parlance brand, how important is it, as you say, to, to be candid with that and be careful about how you will be judged and what you present to people? Because I think thinking of a, a lot of people and, and mostly men, I don't mean to, to run us down, but men who will, who will promote themselves as very much a family guy, presumably from your insight in, in the other side of it in journalism, if you're then found to be unfaithful, a bit of a, a bit of a playboy, you will the journalists will come down on you. But presumably there is a a rough distinction that I felt, and I haven't worked in the, the written press for a long time, but there's a sense that if someone isn't public with their private life, then it's not necessarily fair game. Is that is that a distinction? If you're trying to make a living off your your private persona and that is found to be invalid, then that's a, a treacherous, sort of a, a very tricky route to take. Yeah, it is. I mean, the the, the media, particularly, particularly sort of you know, the written press, are very, very quick to sort of you know, come down on, on, on hypocrisy. Mm. I mean, I think, Ted, the landscape has changed a lot, I should say, since I was a, a journalist. I think, you know, privacy legislation is so much more ingrained now. Um, 
you know, I do look back, you know, when I was sort of starting out in national newspapers in the early 90s, you know, it was the Wild West compared to what it is today. Um, and I think also the sensibilities of editors have changed a lot. When I when I sort of think of some of the the way stories were depicted, you know, particularly around, you know, individuals, um, I think it was a pretty sort of harsh and un, unforgiving climate. And I think that's changed a, a little bit as, as well. Um, but, you know, to go to your original point, you're right. If you portray yourself as a, as a family man um, and actually you're no such thing um, and you're, you know, you're found out, then, yeah, you're going to expect a, a, a pretty rough ride. And it sometimes annoys me when people think that my job is sort of spinning mm. um, because actually, you know, there, there are always ways of pre presenting things in a certain way, of course. Um, but actually, you know, honesty and transparency have to be at the heart ultimately of good communications um and um you know i always say to people you know you will be found out you know because generally um journalists are very good at finding out things yeah and so if someone comes to me and, and doesn't tell me the whole truth and then expects me to represent them and then subsequently you know things emerge which i haven't been told I, i'm not in a position to to help them in the way that i would have been if would sat down at the outset and said, okay, this is the unvarnished truth. Can you help me? And then I can make a judgment and we can look at, you know, what, what's possible. What, what are the greatest sort of reputational restorations that, that you've seen in, in your time? I'm, I'm thinking anecdotally from sport as a teenager watching David Beckham get vilified the effigies after the 1998 World Cup. And he sort of, proved himself he was he was in, out in the cold at Real Madrid as well got back in the team there through hard work under Fabio Capello that seemed a, a pretty powerful story just one of, of resilience and consistency and I think people that speak about David Beckham say that he has got an incredible self-belief and and confidence I mean, what, what other ones have you seen that where people's reputations have been damaged but they've managed to restore them um well, actually, I mean, I suppose going back, it's not on the same scale, perhaps, as Beckham, but, but actually just what I mentioned earlier, you know, with, with Roy Hodgson, mm. when he came to Crystal Palace, having, you know, uh, done the England job, and I remember the first sort of, you know, um, press conference, it really was sort of, you know, you know he's been monstered um, because there was still a lot of sort of, you know, raw memories of England losing to Iceland and all the rest mm. of it. And by the time, it, and, and obviously at the time, Crystal Palace had, had lost uh, the first... Uh, four games, they hadn't scored a goal, um, and, uh, you know, Frank de Poer had departed. And and actually Roy came in and, and stabilised the club. And by the time he left, um, you know, people really sort of um, regarded him a different way from when he'd taken the job. And, of course, he found that quite irritating. He said, I've got all this body of work going back yeah. years and years and Into years. Into Milan. I shouldn't be judged. Yeah, on, yeah exactly. Um and uh, so, so that was you know, on a much smaller scale. That was something that just showed the sort of you know the, the resilience that, that that you can have. I mean, I think David Beckham is a good example because it's yo-yoed as well. And we've seen out mm. in Qatar, he's had a lot of flack for um, you know his decision to be an ambassador for the World Cups, so which just shows that sort of um, you can um, you, you know it, it's a roller coaster. You know, Wayne Rooney is another example where um, his reputation is really um, yo-yoed. But I think most people looking at his time, for example, at Derby County, in very, very difficult circumstances when the club was um, in an administration and on the brink of liquidation, thought, actually, he's brought something to it, which perhaps some people didn't think, you know, he had in him. So um, that was a really interesting example. And I think most people, you know, when I look back at Wayne Rooney bursting onto the scene as a player at the age of 17, he definitely is some, not someone you would have thought was manager material. 
No. But now you look at him and, you know, he's taking his career in quite an interesting path. He's out, gone out to the US and you can see him coming back and um, and kind of managing at a high level. Um, so it shows that, you know, reputation is not linear, you know, mm. and um, I suppose what do we conclude from that? We conclude that there will be ups and there will be downs and you need to be resilient just as in everything in, in life and not sort of assume that when you're down, you can't, you know, recover your reputation. But equally, when you're up, that your reputation is not, you know, assailable i mean unassailable i mean if you another great example i suppose of reputation recovery is ben stokes yeah. i mean you know ben stokes was um obviously on you know on trial for the fracker at the nightclub and mm. he's out you know suspended with the england team you know who would have thought at that point he would have come back and led um england as captain and you know won uh the first you know eight of his first nine matches incredible reputation recovery yeah, that's that's a very good point, actually. Remarkable, I think. And he's also been an advocate for mental health, taking breaks from the game, which is a brave thing to do, I think, even, even in this maybe more empathic era as well. I think it's it's interesting they're talking about the reputational decline of, of people and the, the peaks and troughs. Do you think it's a, a more supportive environment now culturally than, than it was of people, or is it just that the media is is more understanding? Because thinking even recently about Harry Kane, that missing that penalty of in years gone by may have made him receive quite a lot of uh, sort of uh, volatile reactions. I don't know what, what you take on, on that is. Yeah, I mean, I think there is a slightly more forgiving climate. I think it goes two ways as well. I think it's in the media a little bit, but also, you know, in the, if you look at the way players are conducted, and we've had an example, you know, you know, very recent example of Raheem Sterling, obviously mm. feeling he had to leave the World Cup camp because of um, issues at home with the burglary, Going home it was all a bit mysterious as the exact circumstances. There was some misreporting of that, which I think, from what I'm, you know, read, came from from his representatives, not certainly from the FA. But nevertheless, he came back to the England camp, and he ended up, you know, coming on as a substitute, albeit, um, you know, uh, in vain um, against France in the quarterfinal of the World Cup. And I think that shows maybe that's unique to Gareth Southgate, but it certainly shows a very supportive approach. I wonder whether had the same thing happened in a World Cup, you know, generation ago. Um, you know, would 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 that have happened, mm. and also how would that have been reported by the media? Um, but I think you know, just generally, it was interesting. You know, with Harry Kane, um, you know, the, the, what happened to the you know the players, the black players who missed penalties in the Euro uh, finals is you know is, is perhaps very different from what Harry Kane might um, might get. You know, and and so I guess we shouldn't be too sort of. Uh, um, too sure that you know these these things. You know, there is a lot of hate out there, and um, you know, unfortunately, that is something that is part and parcel of of, of, of modern life, particularly with sort of you know anonymous keyboard warriors. And I'm, I'm mm. afraid that's something you can never completely stamp out. Do, do you find tension working in your your sort of sphere with maybe agents who are who are focused primarily on financial reward for their clients? I'm thinking you mentioned David Beckham there, the, the political world that we're in now, and the kind of the tensions that that arise, particularly around civil rights, human rights, with and other nations that perhaps don't agree necessarily, don't have that the same viewpoints. Is there is there a tension there? Because traditionally, I suppose in capitalist society, you're always encouraged to take the biggest paycheck, but maybe reputationally, at the moment, that's not the best course, and long term may actually not be the best financial course either. Well, I think one of the interesting things that I've seen emerge in recent years is players who sort of. Um, Always want to be like Marcus Rashford. And I, I know Marcus Rashford had a sort of decline in form uh, last season. And people say, well, is it all the sort of off the field distractions? But actually, if you rewind before that, when Marcus Rashford was, you know, a great sort of um, 
heroic figure, you know, mm. campaigning for school lunches, etc. Um, I think a lot of um, players were saying to their agents, "What can I do to be more like Marcus Rashford?" And that not all of them by any means, but but I think you know, some of them were looking at, okay, what can I do apart from just being an athlete? How can I use my position, my platform, whether it's you know going down the route through setting up a foundation um, and, and following a particular passion, or, or getting involved in a an area of interest? I think that's something that we've seen where um, you know agents are, are sort of having to you know sort of represent people in a slightly different way. But I mean, certainly when I was sports editor at the Mail, um, it became obvious to me how much um, was being driven by um, agents who were obviously trying to make as much money as possible for, for their clients, and often not necessarily in their clients' best interests, mm. um, and driving transfer speculation, and indeed sometimes driving transfers, which I think were, were ill-advised. I guess that's the difference between a good agent, good agent, and a bad agent. You know, and, and, and a good agent takes a much more rounded, sort of holistic, a long-term approach to to their client and what's in their best interests. And perhaps some other agents are in it for the short-term, quick, you know, quick buck. And it's up to players to to work out whether they've got a good one or less uh, less yeah. good one. Yeah, it's it, it's fascinating, isn't it? And I think the rep, the reputational stuff as well that sports people now are expected seemingly in, to comment on everything. And Gareth Southgate, I think people have said sources close to him that perhaps part of the reason he's feeling a little bit jaded with the England job is having to opine on anything from LGBTQ plus rights to racial equality to, to other factors as well as the England job. He's done it very well. I think a lot of people say he's been very dignified and and very kind of role model like in, in what he's had to say on those subjects. But it's probably an extra challenge that perhaps you wouldn't have envisaged 20 30 years ago as a football manager do you see that the sport and political world joining in that sense in terms of, of reputation it's something to consider I, I presume for for everyone in the public eye yeah absolutely and I think you're right Gareth Southgate's navigated it very well I mean Qatar the World Cup of Qatar was a very particular instance which you know made it very difficult um to avoid that as a as a subject I mean I think it I think it is more difficult. And if you look at what's happening in golf and, you know, live golf out yeah. of you know, Saudi Arabia, that has politicised golf in a way. And and it was quite interesting when some of the breakaway players did a press conference before the start of the live tour. And, you know, they were asked questions which were, you know, quite difficult questions. I think one of them said, well, if, you know, um, President Putin was putting on a golf tournament, you know, and offering you, you know, 10 million pounds, would you go and do it? And, or, you know, would you have played golf for Hitler? And, and you know, these sort of questions, which, and, and, and the golfers, <laughs> were just really ill-equipped to deal with it. They were mm. just totally... And I remember thinking, well, you kind of must have known what you're getting in for. You're not going to get an easy ride if you are... To say that, um, well, that's politics and I'm not involved in politics, it's a line that is increasingly difficult to sort of mm. um, put out um, uh, these days. And I think, you know, um, I'm not saying that you always have to be drawn into it, but certainly if you are taking a decision that is deemed to be quite political in itself, i.e. taking money from a a regime that might be questionable then yeah. expect to be grilled and you're not going to get an easy ride and they have a political goal for organizing the event or whatever there's a, there's a subtext to it isn't yeah. there yeah, tour, it's tourism goal. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and whether whether you agree with it or not that it is sports washing the fact is that as a uh, as an athlete if you've taken that decision that you're going to go and and, and, and play golf you know there then then obviously that has implications in how the media will uh come after you so i think in that instance it's quite difficult to to try and sort of you know not get drawn into it um but i think you know more broadly it does sometimes um worry me that and not talking about sporting i'm talking more widely that brands and businesses sometimes feel they have to get involved and offer a view of something 
but really is nothing to do with them at all because yeah. they feel there's a certain sort of virtue signaling to be done and i think if that's not authentic it just doesn't um in, in my view do them any good yeah um, i think you know there are always issues societal issues that you know everyone has to engage in but sometimes it just seems piling on something because they think it will bring them sort of some sort of reputational benefit and actually if they'd stood back from it and looked at it a bit more dispassionately they would think well did we have to get involved there because we've once we've made a a position then you get pressurized to make a position on you know something else mm. where you might not want to so um, that has issues as well it's, it's an interesting one as well virtue signaling an interesting thing because it's so easy now to say something very altruistic but actually whether you're doing it or not and even in people in their own public life private life now you can put something up on social media but if you if you then kind of um throwing away a lot of plastic or, or driving a gas guzzler and you're talking about the environment you have to be a little bit more consistent is there any tips i don't know if it's applicable to, to everyday people who are listening to this obviously you know we'll give you your contact details in, in a second as well for people who are maybe looking to hire you on a, on a bigger level but any individuals who may be thinking about reputation their reputation it's, it's kind of something that is seemingly on people's minds now with the digital age is there anything you would give them in terms of advice as a general course of direction yeah well it, it would it would sort of very much depend on on who they are and what they're looking to to achieve i think at the outset it's always quite important just to sit down and you know work out what what your objectives are i mean i work with people sometimes who are in difficulty because they've had um something happened that has put them in the media spotlight sometimes deservedly sometimes less so um and so you know i help them with you know navigating media relations but there are also people who um are not in that sort of situation but just want to proactively try and mm. um, manage the reputation i think what I would say is for all of us now, whether we like it or not, living in a digital age, your digital footprint is so important. And the first thing anyone does before they meet you is Google you. Mm. And so sometimes um, it's not just about sort of dealing with, you know, obviously if you've had a, um, a difficult reputational situation and you've got some damaging stories about you, that might be something you need a specific strategy to deal with. But it's not just about that. It's also about how do you sort of you, that is your shop window how do you sort of put your best foot forward and show yourself um and, and you know for whether it's future employers or contacts or whatever it might be how do you do that effectively and that's a whole different thing and there's a sort of positive strategy that um you can put into play for that and and some people say well i don't that's not really for me i don't want to be out there i want to be very private and, that, and that's fine in some circumstances but equally if you are sort of looking to network and looking to, um, you know, advance in, in, in public life, you have to think about how you're perceived online. And that's what we sit down and we work out a kind of full strategy around that. I love it, Tim. Thank you for your time. I think time has almost beaten us, but is pha.com the best place to, to get in, in contact? Uh, with you? It's the, uh, it's the pha group.com. Uh, and uh, yeah, have a look at the uh, website and you can uh, contact me through that. Tim found it fascinating. Thank you very much for your time. Appreciate it. Thanks, Ted. Very enjoyable. Fascinating conversation with Tim, isn't it? That dynamic of maybe not overly concerning ourselves with our brand reputation, analyzing every negative piece of feedback we may get. And you'll often find that negative feedback comes from similar sources who are giving negative feedback to a lot of people digitally if you if you look at their um their activity online. But nonetheless, I found that interesting to speak to Tim and his take on what he's doing now and, and the evolution of journalism as well. Let me know what you think. Are you still a, a reader of newspapers? Hard copy, print? Do you still like feature articles are we missing some of that quality in-depth journalism sometimes i feel like we are in that kind of meditative state you go into and just the way it expands your brain to to read a good informative article whether it's sport news politics culture entertainment whatever it might be
I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please rate it on iTunes, Spotify. If you did, thank you for being here. First and foremost, tell a friend, whatever it may be. Always good to spread the momentum. Remember, uh, Bang & Olufsen of Cheltenham and Serene AV, chief sponsors as well. Look into them if you're up for any home entertainment installations over the festive period. Cytoplan, if you're looking to optimize your immunity, discount at cytoplan.co.uk, 30% off your first purchase, 10% ongoing with the code DRAPER10R. My last name, D-R-A-P-E-R, all capital letters, numerals one zero, and the capital letter R. And remember, Attic Box Audio, relaxed conversations where we record life stories, sitting down with members of the public from and just chatting about things typically from childhood up to the present day, but doesn't necessarily have to be that way. It's a free form conversation and something hopefully will be a good value to, to families, to connect generations, to preserve memories, to preserve voices. And if you find out, or you would like to find out more, head to drapermedia.co.uk to find out that about Attic Box Audio. Remember the free man- mentoring sessions with the Whole Man Academy's Anthony Asprey, available via the link in the show notes. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Have a fantastic week. See you, Daniel.